You are now listening to the June 8th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Walking Our Talk, Grace Upon Grace, and it's time to pray the Bible. First, let's begin with Walking Our Talk. Welcome to Walking Our Talk with Alan and Polly Heller. In this podcast series, Alan and I will discuss material adapted from our book, The Marital Mystery Tour. Join us as we share practical steps to put into action God's principles from His Word, one step at a time. Have you ever tried to shop in a fabric store with three young children? Even normally obedient kids may be driven into mischief by the maddening power of sheer boredom in cloth world. (laughs) Several years ago, when Josh, David, and Jessica were approximately nine, seven, and five years old, I decided to spare them and myself the torture of 15 minutes in the fabric shop at the mall. You may go next door to the sporting goods store, I solemnly intoned, but I want you all to stay together. If you get tired of looking at things in Oshman's, I still want you to wait for me there. Do not come looking for me back here. Stay there until I come for you. Okay, Mommy, the kids all chorused as they turned to go. Sudden inspiration prompted me to call them back. Wait! Three pairs of innocent, questioning eyes focused on me. What are you going to do if you get bored in Oshman's? I queried. Oh, we'll probably just play out there in the hall, (laughs) answered Josh, as the others nodded in affirmation. Ah! Immediately, I envisioned the headlines, Three Siblings Kidnapped at Paradise Valley Mall. No, you won't, I declared. I want you to stay in the store until I come for you. What do I want you to do? Stay in the store until you come for us, Mommy, they chorused. That's right. Now you may go. So at least they knew what you said. Whether they did what you said, that's another thing. Well, it took a little extra time, but it was definitely worth it. So this is Alan and Polly Heller, and we are walking our talk, and we're talking about our book, The Marital Mystery Tour, or we're actually taking topics about marriage that some go directly with the book, and that was an excerpt from the book. And if you want one of those, just get in touch with us and uh, go to our website, walkandtalk.org. But uh, very funny story, honey. How did you feel when that was all going on? I felt so such relief that I had really gotten them to hear what I wanted them to do. I, I, I just imagined them out there running around in the mall, scattering <laughs> in every direction. Oh, it was so good to know that they really heard and understood what it was that I wanted them to do. So we're talking about the marital mystery tour. We've talked about comradeship, touched on friendship, Uh, What can you do to build vital friendship with your mate? Commitment. How can you close all the back doors in your marriage? And now we're in the midst of communication. What will help you close the loop and understand each other? We talked last time about the communistar. And in the book, we actually have the diagrams 
there. So you may want to pick that up. And um, there's another aspect besides closing the loop and um, the communistar. It's this thing we call contracting for time or taking a time out. And the other day I was reading in this Prepare Enrich program, which is a great program for premarital counseling as well as uh, couples who want a couple's checkup. And it's called Prepare Enrich. I think if you just go to prepareenrich.com or .org, you can find that. But here are the things, here are the components of a contract from their perspective. You recognize your need for a timeout. Now, what would cause us to need to have a timeout, honey? What caused <laughs> those kids to need to have a timeout? When would you ask the kids to get a timeout? Well, actually, it, it's more with us. When in our communication, we need to take a time out. With the kids, you just send everybody to their room. And, uh, right, but the reason for the time out is because things are out of control and you want to get things back in control. And that's the same thing for us. Sometimes the parent needs the time out, <laughs> not the kid. Well, here's the thing these kids that were little when I gave this illustration are now parents themselves. And so they get it, huh? we were babysitting our grandchildren yeah. a couple of weeks ago who are 10 and 7 years old. And these two girls just love each other so much. And they spend a lot of time together and they play really well together. But 80 I 80% of the time. Yeah. But I could hear them. Like the tone of voice that you could hear. Yeah. Right. And I hear them playing and they're giggling and laughing. And then I hear a little bit of bumping and thumping. Ooh. And then they're, they're kind of squealing a little bit. And I know that the next thing I'm going to hear is somebody crying. And... And they're yelling at each other, and and then it's time to separate them. And I I told them when we were visiting with them a couple of weeks ago, you must go to your rooms. You are not allowed into each other's rooms. You are not allowed to play with each other the rest of the day. You can do anything you want in your own room. So you gave me some consequences too. Well, I just said you cannot play with each other. Right. I didn't even have to give them any more directive than, than that. And within 10 minutes, they were asking if they could play <laughs> together again. But they just needed to separate from each other and to realize that it's worth it to make the effort to get along with each other, to have the reward and the benefit of playing with each other and being in relationship with each other. So here's what James 119 says. It says, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. And another verse in James says, The anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. So if I'm out of control, then I need to use this contracting for time Thing, or maybe I'm too tired, or maybe emotionally I just can't take it. I mean, the other day, uh, you know, you wrote me a letter instead of talking to me because you knew that I would interrupt you and get upset uh, if you if you told me these things verbally. And even as I was going out the door, I still was 
giving you some <laughs> commentary. I'm glad you recognize that. Yes. I recognize it. I just would like to get it done with and get on with the next thing. But uh, I did not get uh, – in a contract, you want to talk about where are we going to talk, when are we going to talk, and what is the issue. And again, in this prepare and rich document, it talks about recognize your need for a timeout, request a timeout, relax and calm down. That's a good one. Remember what's important, like what happened, and then resume your conversation. All couples fight, not all couples fight effectively. And what we say is when we teach these skills to people is we're teaching them how to learn to fight right. And there are a lot of things that Paulie and I have that are very much the same. But one thing that we're very different on is how we communicate our style as well as uh, our tone of voice. And I grew up in New York. And, you know, in our family, we could raise our voices as long as we weren't disrespectful and talk about something. And then we would hug and kiss and, you know, we'd make up and get on with things the next day. But that wasn't quite how you did it. Right, right. My my family did not um, raise their voices at, at one another, at least not, not the level with which, in the intensity with which your family talks to one another. But there's it's a style of communication. To us, and it was you're, normal. You're just more aggressive and right. and out there right. with expressing what's going on inside of you. So, but my tendency then, when I'm hit with all of that intensity, intensity is to withdraw, and so I want to pull back, and and just walk away. And I want to keep coming and, forward. And, yeah, and so. What does to, that do for you? <laughs> Well, shuts you down. It certainly, <laughs> yeah. It can that I can either raise my my level to your level, but then you raise to the next level, and your Never your next level will always get higher than mine. Right, and so we don't want to compete. We want to complete uh, each, right. with each other. And so this point here, your second point. Uh, from Prepare and Rich is to request the timeout, and they say, don't just walk away. You want to request. You want to verbally say, look, I, we need This we need isn't going to work out well. <laughs> yeah, and we say at this point, you want to ask for a contract. You want to say, look, this is not a good time. We're, we're not getting anywhere with this conversation. Let's come back and talk about this after we've cooled down. It might be in an hour. It might be in Every the couple's different in, in terms morning. of what they need, or every person is different. Right, right. But what helps couples, I mean, I am so surprised that people don't do this. They, they go, well, I tried to get her to talk. I'm going, <laughs> you're trying to get her to talk. That's the problem. You need to ask her, is this a good time to talk? I mean, right. in other words, uh, most men are not used to asking questions. We're used to leading and giving orders and being the head of something in our work. And so we're used to telling people what to do. And so the idea of asking my wife a question, first of all, it makes me feel insecure as a man because I'm supposed to know everything and know what to do. And sometimes women expect that of us and they like it. But in a difference of opinion, 
to ask a question rather than just tell you, Polly, this is what we're doing. Um, somehow we think that's weakness. And yet, if couples will make an agreement that when we are in a place of conflict, and if I am too tired or this is not the right time, to simply verbally say, I want to talk about this. And I think that's important too, Polly. We talked about the Communistar making an intention known that this isn't no forever. This is just no for this moment. And in give me 15 minutes or give me 20 minutes or, or can we do this tomorrow? Well, I remember one day <laughs> we were – we had reached one of these points where where the – conversation, the tone of voice, and the emotional intensity was just really starting to escalate. And I, and I said, I just need, I just need to go for a walk around the block. And as I walked around the block, I could feel, well, the first the first part is I went up the street, I'm fuming, steaming. And why did I ever marry this oh, man? I'm so and, upset with this guy. Yeah. And then I turn the corner and I start praying. Lord, help me see what you want me to oh, see. Oh, you in mean this. you can take a contract and, and pray. <laughs> that's, oh, that's right. Good. And so, you know, we, we talked in our last session about the Communistar where we've got one little. Uh, uh, triangle in the star is for discernment. This is a place where the Lord can break oh, in. And as I, as I came, uh, turned the corner, went down the next talking. street, the Lord starts to speak to me about, well, your attitude was da-da-da-da-da. And, you know, you might have said this, and you need to ask his forgiveness for this, and you need to look at it from his perspective and not just your own. And uh, then I turned the corner again, and and the and the Lord started to minister more to me. And then as I came back up the street, I thought, okay, here are some of the things that I realize I really need to say to Alan and let him know this and this and this. And by the time I came back into the house, I had a fresh approach for how I wanted to the conversation to go and what kinds of things I needed to say to you without that emotional intensity that I left the house. <laughs> so the benefits of taking time out or making a contract are, one, you come under control of your own emotions because usually that's what destroys the conversation. Two, it helps your emotional state to lower, I think it's the Gottmans who say if your heartbeat is above 90 beats a minute, you basically are insane. <laughs> and so that's why people say, I never heard that or you didn't say that in an argument because they're not thinking about the other person. And what does love do? The First Corinthians 13 love chapter says love always thinks of the other, not themselves, and always rejoices in the truth. Uh, I was trying to think of, you know, what's an example of a timeout that somebody had? I was thinking, Jonah, you really wouldn't want to be. <laughs> <laughs> he got a long you, timeout. Yeah, f swallowed <laughs> by a fish, and he was in dark and with all, and I'm sure it wouldn't smell very good either. But he had a, God gave him a timeout because he had a terrible well, attitude. Moses had a 40 year timeout. In yeah. <laughs> so, 
the, the moral of the story is we don't want you to have a 40-year timeout. So just <laughs> let your partner know, here's when I can talk about this and then come back. And that's why we say if you make a contract, say, this is my issue. I want to talk about how we do such and such. And I want to talk about it in an hour or I want to talk about it tomorrow night. Or sometimes if it's a weighty issue, we've even said next weekend when we have two or three hours, this is a life altering issue. And, and so it will take a lot more time. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think one of the other things that can happen in a timeout, especially if it's it's overnight, you give yourself not just some time to think about what's going on, but also sometimes you just need some physical rest Mm. and refreshment because those these blow-ups take a lot of energy. Uh, That emotional energy also takes physical energy. And sometimes they happen when we're really tired, when we're communicating at the end of the day. And uh, to sleep on it and to wake up refreshed in the morning might make a big difference. Well, I remember when we joked about the fact that we were told at the beginning of our marriage, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. In Ephesians, it, that's what it says. But we found the sun was coming up on our wrath. I right. mean, <laughs> we didn't even know what the issue was anymore. And so there are just practical things. And I think one of the things that we try and give the body of Christ is practical tools for whether it's communication or their marriage and, you know, taking things like our triple R weekend, recreation, romance and renewal and taking a weekend away. We're going to do a whole session on that uh, later on Uh, or whether it's the marital mystery tour book or the workbook or whether it's the trust book. These are practical tools to help you connect with your marriage. Right. You know, another thing that can happen during that uh, timeout period is that um, we can have, we might have other things that are causing pressure. Mm. Like I've got, I've got time pressure on me right now because I know I have to go pick up the kids. I've got all this laundry to do. Um, You need to get to an appointment uh, in a couple of hours and you need to prepare other things. And so if you just take some time out, it allows you to kind of clear those things off the table too and remove some of those external pressures that are also affecting the way you're communicating with each other in in the now. So you can go and get that stuff done and say, look, I I know that this is going to take us an hour or two, and I don't have the time right now to talk about it because I have this appointment. I've got to get this other stuff done. Let's make a time when we don't have a lot of pressure on the other side of it so that we can just sit and talk about this. Again, referring to the Gottman's research where they, I think they researched like 700 couples uh, and they videotaped them and they found out the number one most important thing to not have a divorce is to repair in the marriage. So that has to do with taking time out to come back together and resolve There are two things in relationship. There's the issue, and then there's the relationship. And God's concern is that we be one as he is one. And as I joked 
I think in our trust podcast, you know, I haven't seen the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit argue lately. (laughs) They are one. And his prayer in John 17 was that we would be one. And he also says, forgive others as I have forgiven you. So lots of times the reason why we need a timeout is because I have bitterness or I have a negative attitude, a bad attitude, and I need an attitude adjustment, and that timeout can give me, I think that's what you were saying, I can get my attitude adjusted so I can come back at this thing, and whether I agree or disagree on the issue, we can talk in a way that's loving. Right, and another thing that I can do during that timeout is organize my thoughts, organize my uh, approach to the issue. Sometimes we we will measure the importance or the weightiness of an issue on a scale of one to ten. Like talking about, say, picking up uh, dog poop in the backyard. <laughs> you know, that's, that's about as common as you get. <laughs> yeah, that's like a one or a two. It's not really that important. But it does need to be done. But it does need to be done. But but we but might to blow start up about talking, it. <laughs> right. We might start talking about that small issue and end up reacting to reacting to each other. And and it blows up into something really right. big. Whereas if we're talking about some financial thing, something that is really of major importance in our lives, that is more of an eight, nine, ten issue, then we need to really take that time and approach it with a lot of seriousness. But the emotions that we feel can feel sort of the same. And that's what helps to through the cooling off period to say, okay, how big of an issue is this really? What is the issue? How do I really feel about it? What do I really think about it? And if we get back together the next day or after this timeout cooling off period, we can say, you know, this was really a small issue. <laughs> I My emotions got blown out of proportion to what this issue really is. This is all I really wanted to talk about. And we can wrap it up pretty quickly once right. we think about it. Our friends, the Lafoons, uh, they, they have a ministry called Celebrate Marriage. And they talk about when they get in conflict, they joke. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know how good we are at doing that. <laughs> but for them, it works. And I think this is what we're trying to do is we give you these tools for walking your talk. We want to walk out what the Word of God says. And that's what the Marital Mystery Tour does. And as we've talked about being friends and having a commitment where there are no back doors, then we can communicate in a way that will come back to each other. And so the next uh, session, we're going to be talking about valuing. How do I value you even sometimes when I don't like you? And so that can be a tough situation. So uh, till next time, keep walking your talk. This has been Walking Our Talk with Alan and Polly Heller, where we put into action those principles we know from God's Word, one step at a time. You can find more help at our website, walkandtalk.org.
cross before me, the world behind me, the cross before me, no turning back, no turning Next is a sermon by Pastor Mark Martin of Calvary Community Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is Free to Walk. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Mark. 
Let's open our Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2. We're going verse by verse through the Gospel of Mark, and I want us to jump ahead just a little bit from where we stop. We'll go back and pick up where we left off, but I just wanted to move ahead and go to chapter 2, and let's look at this account in Jesus' ministry. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And uh, many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. Now, do you remember I said that Mark has some details that the other Gospels don't have? So I'm going to go back and I'm going to tell you what he says that the other Gospels don't if you want to underline them or whatever. But it says, when he returned to Capernaum after some days, and this is what Mark says that no one else says, it was reported that he was at home. Now, Mark is writing Peter's notes, okay? So it could be even that Peter is dictating this and and Mark is writing it down. So whose home did Jesus live in? Peter's. So Peter would remember this and he would have thought, man, that was the day the whole crowd was in my house. So maybe, you know, it was reported that he was at home and many were gathered together so that there was no more room not, and this is also unique, even at the door. So we're going to hear people being crammed even to the door. There was no room. People, there's standing room only. They were packed in there. And he was preaching the word to them when they came to him, bringing a paralytic but carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, this is unique, they removed the roof above him, and when they had, here's another one, made an opening, they let down, and then it goes on, the bed on which the paralytic lay. Now, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they had thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose immediately, picked up his bed, and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. I bet you I would have said the same thing. How about you? Verses 1 and 2. He came to Capernaum after many days. It was reported that he was at home and this huge crowd gathers. This is a result of many of Jesus' miracles, I'm sure, and his teaching. Previous to that, remember, a demon-possessed man had been set free. And we haven't read it yet, but a leper was cleansed from his leprosy. Incurable disease. And so Jesus cleanses the leper And so as a result, you know, there are these crowds following Jesus. He had already preached the Sermon on the Mount, so it makes sense. Now, uh, where Peter's house was, we know where his house was. 
The roads were only, the street in front of his house was only about maybe 15, 16, 17 yards wide. Not a lot of room for thousands of people in Peter's house. It was a little larger than others because, you know, he was a wealthy fisherman. And so maybe their house was a tad bigger, but come on, how many people can you get in your house? Let's say you could cram in your house 100 people. I mean, really cramming in your house. That's still not many people. So people were packed in there. And Mark noted that the crowd was very large. Verse 2, so the house was packed and there was no room for people. They all had to be outside. Now, when people think about Jesus in his ministry, often we think about his healing miracles. The blind see, the lame are walking, the deaf are hearing. I think of those kinds of things. But Jesus' primary ministry was teaching. That's what he was doing. And so it says in verse 2, he was preaching the word to them. That was his primary ministry. Though lots of people gathered at the house that day, Jesus knew that it was more important to heal the inside than it was to heal the outside. Don't get me wrong, being physically healed is an important thing. That's great. But even if you're healed physically instantly, you're still going to die, aren't you? What matters the most is being healed on the inside because that's eternal and you live forever. So physical healing is important. But Jesus knows that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Verse 3, and they came bringing him a paralytic carried by four men. Now for centuries people have been asking the question, why is this man paralyzed? You know, what was the cause of his paralysis? This, in his case, seems to be as a result of some kind of sin that he committed. Now, we know that most sickness isn't caused by sin in somebody's life. Are you all agreed with that? I know that there are churches and there are groups that say, you know, if you're sick, it's because you don't have faith or there's sin in your life. But that's not true. You know, even some of the apostles were sick and didn't get well or weren't healed. So it's not a lack of faith. But in this man's life, according to verse 5, it was sin in his life because Jesus forgave him and he was well. So there's a connection between his paralysis and his sin. And I don't know what he'd done, but it must have been significant for the Lord to put him down. Now notice at something else here. I see the devotion of this man's friends. We could take one whole weekend and just talk about these friends of the guy, these four men who brought their sin-sick friend to Jesus. Word was out that Jesus uh, held out hope for the hopeless, and uh, they loved him enough to bring him to Jesus. And that's what good friends do. Good friends will bring others to Jesus. I think we all know people, and we love them, and the nicest thing we could ever do for them is to bring them to Jesus, to share Jesus with them. They were faith-filled friends. They were faithful friends. And they were determined to get this guy to Jesus, whatever the obstacles. And there were obstacles, weren't there? I mean, immediately, the guy, I think of, he couldn't help himself. He couldn't get up and go to Jesus. It, it looks like he couldn't even crawl to Jesus. There's nothing he could do to help himself. 
And we know people like that. I was like that before Christ. Some people, it seems like they're able to kind of make a move or a step to Jesus, but this guy wasn't able to. The second big obstacle was that there were people in the way. Couldn't help himself. But now I want to come to Jesus, but these people are in my way. I can't even, maybe if you were taller, you know, you could see. We know, you know, by excavation and seeing graves and all that, the people of Jesus' times were generally five foot was a really tall person, five foot. So maybe, you know, you could see Jesus if you could look over the crowd or somehow jump to see Jesus, but they couldn't. They couldn't get through. And I know that there are times when people can't get through to Jesus because people are in the way. It could be something someone has said. That gets in the way. Somebody is hypocritical. That gets in the way. Somebody is unkind. And so that person gets in the way of somebody coming to Jesus. Maybe you've been offended by somebody. That Christian offended me. There's somebody who gets in your way and keeps you from coming to the Lord. But you know, there's always going to be people or things that are going to be obstacles The devil throws them up because he doesn't want you to get to Jesus. There are all sorts of people in these guys' way. They couldn't even get to the door. So what are you going to do about it? Are you going to say, well, I guess I'll never get to Jesus because these people got in my way? Are we going to say, I guess I'll just lay here the rest of my life being bitter because these people got in my way? No. What are you going to do? Look at verse 4. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. Down came the man. Jesus did not rebuke him. Jesus doesn't say a word about anything about that. Verse 5, this is what Jesus thought. He didn't say, what a mess you've made. Jesus says, it says, and when Jesus saw their what, gang? Faith. Sometimes faith looks messy. Sometimes faith is risky. Sometimes faith is way outside of the box. When Jesus saw their faith, now it doesn't say the man's faith, does it? It's not the faith of the man that healed him. It's the faith of his friends. I mean, they showed their faith. Try to get him in the door, having to somehow get him up the steps or up a ladder, digging through, nothing's going to stop us. We're intent, we're going to get our friend to Jesus, lowering him down somehow. And when Jesus saw their faith, their determination, he said to the paralytic, my son, your sins are forgiven. I'm sure everybody was surprised by those words. My son, your sins are forgiven. And they were probably thinking, wait a minute, what does this have to do with forgiveness? This guy can't move, just heal him. Jesus knew that this man's Outward paralysis was a mirror image of his soul. His outward paralysis was a mirror image of what had happened in his soul. His sin had paralyzed him. His sin had stopped him. His sin had kept him from being able to move forward, and sin will do that to you. Many people can identify with this man. 
his sad condition mirrors their lives as well. Sin can paralyze you, can immobilize you, can stop you dead in your tracks. You know, at first, sin may seem fun. And when you hear people say, well, sin isn't fun, you don't want to say, I'm thinking, where have you been all your life? What do you mean sin isn't fun? Sin's fun a lot of times. How many of you believe sin can be fun? Yes, some of you say no. I do know what you mean. But in the moment, sin is pleasurable, sin is fun, or it wouldn't be a temptation, right? Nobody wants to go, I'm going to hurt myself because that's going to be bad. Nobody does that. See, sin is in the guise of being great. With the garden, when Adam and Eve were tempted, it wasn't a rotten piece of fruit. The devil said, hey, why don't you eat that stinking, rotten thing? Sin is attractive. It probably tasted good, too. Can be inviting. Sin can taste delicious initially. Initially. It can seem fun until you realize, usually too late, that you stepped onto a very slippery slope on the path of life. You know, sin builds the prison that we ultimately will find ourselves in. The Bible says in Proverbs 5.22, an evil person is held captive by his own sins. They are ropes that catch and hold him. He will die for lack of self-control. He will be lost because of incredible folly. Evil persons held captive by his own sins. They are ropes that will catch him and hold him. Sin ties you up. Don't be fooled. The Bible says in Proverbs 28, people who conceal their sins will not prosper, but if they confess and turn from them, they will receive mercy. People looking on the outside would have thought that this man's most urgent need was healing physically, and then maybe physical therapy after that. But that wasn't his greatest need. His greatest need was the forgiveness of sin. Look at what happened, verses 6 and 7. Now, some of the scribes are sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? The religious leaders knew, like we know, that only God can forgive sins. That's the whole point here, by the way, is that Jesus is God, and that Jesus, that's a prerogative of God to forgive sins, And Jesus happens to know their thoughts, which is also prerogative of God. Only God has this omniscience. Only God knows all things. And so God is able to read our thoughts. And so Jesus, he says to them, verse 8, and immediately Jesus perceived in his spirit what they questioned within themselves. And he says, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? Now you tell me, what would be easier to say? Tell me. Your sins are forgiven. Exactly. I mean, I could say that to you. Brothers and sisters, before we leave, your sins are forgiven. It's like, okay, What's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven. What's harder to say? 
to a man who's been paralyzed for we don't know how long. Son, arise, take up your bed, and walk. That's harder to say, right? Exactly. I'm going to show you what the harder to say thing is, and it's going to prove my authority. It's going to prove who I say I am. And he says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said the paralytic, I love it. I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed, went out before them all, and they were all amazed. Glorify God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. Hey, they said that about his teaching too, didn't they? You know, when he was teaching in the synagogue, they were saying, man, this guy teaches. His teaching's amazing. He doesn't teach like the scribes. He teaches as one who has authority. Now, again, Jesus says that you know that I have authority on earth to forgive sins. Son, get up. Your sins are forgiven. Now get up and walk. Now, part of the miracle here was not just that he got up, but he got up, and I'm going to say without any physical therapy, right? His muscles had atrophied. The man, you know, how could he even stand? But this miracle also included the strengthening of his muscles, his tendons, his ligaments. Everything was put back. And, I mean, it had to have been incredible to see this guy get up. And he was able to walk away. And now the crowd that was in his way, it's all partying, isn't it? First, Jesus forgave the man. I don't hear any word of accusation, do you? I don't hear Jesus bring up the sin, even. All I hear Jesus, I didn't hear Jesus little him or berate him in any way. Jesus doesn't mention that what he did was the result of his sin. He didn't shame him. You know, instead, the greatest evidence of Jesus' love is that he just said, I forgive you, get up now, and walk. Jesus says that the person who comes to him, he says, the one who comes to me, I will most certainly not cast out. I will never, no, never reject one of them who comes to me. I just want to talk about forgiveness for just a moment. When we sin, our automatic default is guilt, right? It's a default, automatically, and it started with Adam and Eve. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, they ate the fruit, and the Lord came walking in the evening. Maybe they had a habit of having a date with the Lord, but the Lord comes and walks Looking, and he's looking for them, quote unquote. Does God know where they are? Yes. But he's looking for them. Hey, Adam and Eve, where are you? Uh, here we are, Russell in the bushes, you know. Tried to cover themselves. Well, we realized we were naked and we clothed ourselves. And the Lord said, Who told you you were naked? So he had no sense of shame. You hearing what I'm saying? No, can you imagine living a life with shame never coming up? I can't. Because shame and guilt is a default in our lives. Automatic default. You know, because, and you know, there are reasons that we ought to have guilt. There's a reason why we ought to have shame. Because sin leads to that. But when we sin, now God says, I don't want you to automatically default to sin and shame. I want you to automatically default to me to look to me for forgiveness and strength and acceptance. Amen? That's what God wants our default to be. Automatically, we default to his grace. 
I've messed up again. And the Lord doesn't say, yeah, you really have, you know? Shame on you. But there is somebody who does say, yeah, you have. Shame, shame on you. You did it again. You said you never would do it again. He accuses us. He's called the accuser. Who is that? Satan. He's the accuser of the brothers and sisters. And he never stops. The Bible says that he accuses us before God day and night. Sometimes you can't sleep. The accuser of the brethren is accusing you day and night. You can't get the sin out of your mind. I want to talk to you about forgiveness. In Isaiah 43, let's look at it. Verse 25. It's to the left, of course. I would say kind of middle-ish in your Bible. If you're going backwards, you can't miss it. You'll see Jeremiah, then you'll come to Isaiah. If you start at the beginning, you'll go through Psalms, Proverbs, and you'll close to Isaiah. You're going to write these verses down. Isaiah chapter 43, look at verse 25. I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. How many can say amen to that? I mean, I'll stick my own name in there. I, I, this is God. I am he who blots out Mark's transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember Mark's sins. Is that cool? Now, I want you to read it with me, and you put your name, and it'll sound like, you know, crazy, you know, with all of us saying our own names, but let's put our names in there. I, I am he who blots out Mark's transgression for my own sake, and I will not remember Mark's sins. How's that feel? Tell me how that felt. It felt good, didn't it? For some of you, you had a hard time saying it because you say, you don't know what I've done. Well, I'll get there in a minute. Look at Psalm 103. So you go to the left a little bit more to the book of Psalms, buzz through Proverbs. Okay, are you there? Okay, you got to write down verses 12 and 13. Now, read with me. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Fear means revere him, okay? So what about our sins? The Bible says as far as the east is from the west, so far as removed our transgressions from us. I think you didn't say north from the south because we can measure north and south, can't we? But east and west, you can't measure east and west, can you? And that's why the Holy Spirit, so far has he what? Our sins? Removed our sins. Oh, guilt, oh, shame, where are you? You have been what? Removed. Your sins have been removed. Now, God says, just like that, just as a father has compassion, bounce, 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 loving on his kids, so the Lord has, bounce, 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 loving on his kids toward those who revere him. You see, you are God's beloved child. Do you hear what I'm saying? Moms and dads, grandma, grandpas, aunts and uncles, do you hear what I'm saying? Micah 7 verse 19 says, you have cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. 
Hebrews 8, 12 says, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. I don't know how God does it. I'm not gonna get into, I can't explain. There's better theologians than me. I'm gonna ask us to be completely honest and transparent. How many of us have a sin that it just seems like we struggle with? It's like, I hate it, but it's like, I do it over and over again. You need my power, you need to understand maybe what's causing you to fall all the time. You need to know the truth, the truth will set you free. That's another topic. Right now we're talking about guilt and shame. And when you sin the same thing, I'm not saying go ahead, I want you to keep in the struggle, but you just got to know when you sin, there's forgiveness of sin. When your automatic default is guilt and shame, God says, I want your new automatic default to be forgiveness and grace. My child, your sins are forgiven. Get up and walk. Don't let this stop you. Don't let your sin paralyze you. Don't let your sin become something that stops your walk with the Lord. There's a promise in 1 John chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. I do want us to look at it. You know, it helps to see something, to hear it. It helps to say it too. 1 John 1, verses 8 and 9. Read with me. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Okay, anybody here gonna say you have no sin? Because I wanna call you a liar. You know, one translation says, we are liars, and the truth is not in us. I'm just waiting. I want to call some, no? I once pastored at a church where a guy said he had no sin. He said he never sinned, and I thought, well, let me talk to your wife, you know. But, of course, verse 8 says that couldn't have been possible. So if we have the same way have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. Now read verse 9 with me. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. From all unrighteousness. If we confess our sins now, I looked in the Greek. The Greek is helpful sometimes. How many times can I confess my sin and him still be faithful? Does it run out? Does anybody have a footnote in your Bible that says how many times you can do this before God is is finally says, you know what, I'm done. I can't forgive this anymore because you've run out of chances. This is like your hundredth time. I don't go beyond hundred in verses like this. Does anybody see that? I don't. I just see the continuous grace of Jesus Going and going. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. That's a yeah, duh, the Bible. God doesn't want us to sin. That's what the Bible says. But if anyone does sin, okay, that includes me and you, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not for ours only, but for also the sins of the whole world. I told you there is the accuser accusing us before God day and night. Shame on you. Shame on him, God. Shame on her, God. She's sinned. She's guilty. 
This says, ah, but we have an advocate with the Father. Advocate means a defense attorney. So as Satan accuses us, Jesus stands for us in his perfect righteousness, and Jesus says, shut up. I died for this child. I've forgiven this child. You have no right to accuse this child anymore because I'm covering them with my perfect righteousness. I took their guilt. I took their shame. Jesus bore all our shame on the cross. Amen? And there's perfect forgiveness for us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your forgiveness of our sins. We thank you that through Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, our shame and our guilt is removed and our default no longer has to be guilt and shame. Our default is looking to you for your continued grace and thanking you for your continued forgiveness. I want to pray For each one of us, no matter what we struggle with, you said, whoever, whoever comes to me, you will never reject, you would never cast away. The door is wide open. The door for forgiveness is open to anyone who comes to you. We're grateful for that, Lord. And maybe as our eyes are closed, our our heads are bowed, And if you just are in need of that special, you just feel like, you know what? I've been spoken to. Guilt and shame has just been hassling me. Maybe this week, maybe for a long time. Guilt and shame is heavy, and it's a heavy thing to carry. But Jesus has shown you something today from his word. And we're not saying that you're, you're dealing with the top five sins, you know. But it's just this guilt and shame stuff, and you're tired of it, and you've recognized the truth. I just want, would you just, I'm not gonna have you come forward or go any place. I'm not gonna have you stand, nothing like that. But I just wanna pray for you. Would you raise your hand? I'm not gonna send you to any room or anything. Okay, put your hand down. Lord, a lot of us are just really touched by what we've read in your word, by the truth. And you said the truth will set us free. Thank you that we're here this day, this time, to hear this word. I pray that these brothers and sisters especially would be super strengthened by your promises, that you, by the Holy Spirit's power, would give them increasing victory in their lives. And we're asking this, all of us, in Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. Above all powers, above all kings, above all nature and all created things, above all wisdom and all the ways of man, you were here before the world Above all kingdoms, above all thrones, above all wonders the world has ever known, above all wealth and treasures of the 
Now you can find all the programs of Heart and Soul on podcast. You can easily play this week's or past week's program. 
or even download them on your device in just a few minutes. Search for Heart and Soul at your iTunes stores now. Coming up next is It's Time to Pray the Bible. Hello, my name is Deborah Joy. I am the host of this program, It's Time to Pray the Bible. I would like to start with Luke chapter 22, verses 19 and 20, which says, And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. The Greek word for remembrance is anamnesis, which means reminder or recalling, memory, recollection. And Colossians chapter 2 verse 14 says, Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. The Greek word for having canceled is exaleho, which means to blot out, completely wipe away, completely remove, erase, and to wipe off. Our Jesus completely erased the record of the charges against us and took it away by permanently nailing to the cross. The divine nature of Christ has been embedded into us, and we are totally set free from every trace of sin by the power of the blood of Jesus Christ. There are two additional scripture readings. The first one is from Romans chapter 3, verses 23 through 26. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God He passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time, so that He would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The second scripture reading is from Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 through 20. For He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. 
all things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church, and He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him. And through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or in things in heaven. Let's remember what Jesus has done and magnify our Lord together. Jesus. We praise you for all you have done for us. You have completely rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us for your eternal kingdom of light. In you, we are redeemed and forgiven of our sins through your precious blood. You proved your passionate and unfailing love for us. By dying in our place on the cross while we are sinners, and you have fully reconciled us to God through your unblemished blood, we have heard your powerful declaration towards us: "You are now righteous in my sight." We thank you for your amazing mercy and abundant grace. Jesus, our faith in you transfers your righteousness to us, and you now declare us flawless in your eyes and guarantee us permanent access into this marvelous kindness that has given us a perfect relationship with you. What incredible joy bursts forth within us as we keep on celebrating our hope. Of experiencing your marvelous glory, filled with your fullness of life and joy, overflows within us. Jesus, through our union with you, we have experienced circumcision of heart. All of the guilt and power of sin has been cut away and is now extinct because of what you have accomplished for us. Lord, we were buried with you into your death, and we were raised with you when we believed in your resurrection power. Since we have been co-resurrected with you, we are empowered to walk in the power of new life and abundant freedom. By the blood of your cross, everything in heaven and earth is brought back to its original intent. Restored to innocence again, Jesus, you are the divine portrait and the exact image of the invisible God, and the firstborn heir of all creation. For through you, everything was created, both in the heavenly realm and on the earth, all that is seen, and all that is unseen, every seat of power, realm of government. Principality and authority 
It was all created through you and for your purpose. You existed before anything was made, and now everything finds completion in you. You are the head of your body, which is the church. Lord, you are the most exalted one, holding first place in everything. You are the head of every kingdom and authority in the universe. We give you all the glory, honor, and praise forever and ever. In your powerful name, we pray. Amen. We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week. Mm-hmm.